Hello, world. This is Satori Shakur coming to you live from WDET in Detroit. This next story is from Lucia Wiley Eckert. It's a story about how she first learned about race. Ladies and gentlemen, Lucia Wiley Eckert. Good evening. evening. (laughs) My first memory of race was in kindergarten. I was at friend's school in Detroit at the coloring table. I was sitting with my friends, Alex and Julie, and I decided to draw a picture of the three of us. So I looked at my box of markers and I picked out the yellow for myself. I drew an outline of my face and my curly hair. I picked out brown for Alex and colored her in. I picked out black for Julie and colored her in. Ta-da! I showed my friends. They looked upset. Alex looked upset, but not as mad as Julie. (laughs) That's not my color, she said, pointing at the black figure. Yes, it is, I said, laughing at her. No, that's not what I look like. Yes, it is, I said, looking at my box of seven markers. You're the black marker. What other color would you be? Julie was mad. She did not want to color with me anymore. She did not want to play at recess. And she did not want to sit together. At that point in my life, color was simply descriptive. The next year, that changed. It was a normal day in first grade, and I was walking to music class. And I was wondering if we'd be singing or playing instruments that day. I hoped it would be singing, because that was my favorite. But when I got there, the teacher called us to the middle of the room. She said, today, we're going to act out history. She said, I need the white kids to go to this side of the room and the black kids to go to that side. We looked at her confused. We didn't know where to go. She started pointing at us one by one. Lucy, you're white, you go over there. Julie, you're black, you go over there. I took my spot on my side of the room. I looked across at my friends who were suddenly different than me. Julie and Adam and Lauren were black. I looked at my teacher and she was white. She said, we're going to act out scenarios from plantation history. She said, okay, I need the white kids. You guys live in a nice house and you have a fancy bed and she had us lie on the ground and look comfortable. But the black kids, she said, have to sleep in a leaky hut with no bed, and she had them roll around on the ground uncomfortably. She said the white kids get to play all day and rest, and she had us skip in a circle. But the black kids have to work all day in the hot, hot heat, and she mimed a garden hoe. She said the white kids get to use the bathroom inside and use a toilet but the black kids have to poop in the field. And we groaned and I felt sick to my stomach. And the role play continued and my friends crawled across the room and mimed knocking on the door saying, let us in, let us in. And the world spun and I didn't know what to do. And at the end of class, our teacher did not explain what happened and we went to recess and we were mad at each other. And we came back inside and we were mad at each other. And when I got home that day, I told my parents, sobbing, what had happened. And my parents were mad, and my mom called the school, and other parents called the school, and that teacher was later fired 
for what was a very unconventional music class. <laughs> but that was the first time I ever knew color to be race, and it made me nervous to be different. In grade school, my best lessons happened at home. I remember in third grade, the first day, my teacher called the roll, and she got to Janine, and she laughed, and she said, I'm not even going to try to say this name. And we laughed and laughed, and we looked at Janine, and she blushed a little, and we all laughed and laughed. And I came home, and I told my parents about the first day of school, and my teacher said, I'm not even going to say that name. And we laughed and laughed, I told my parents. And my dad looked at me gravely. He said, names mean something. They hold our history and our culture. He wrote out Janine's name and broke out the syllables. I repeated, Abdel Salam. In fourth grade, we learned about our nation's hero, Christopher Columbus. <laughs> he was this wonderful man who found this great new world and started this amazing country, and he was wonderful. So I came home jabbering to my parents about my great lesson and how this wonderful man had came here, and that's how this all got started. And my parents again looked quite concerned. And my dad took me upstairs to his study in the attic, and he pulled Howard Zinn, A People's History of the U.S. from the wall. <laughs> and he read to me about how the native people had been brutally slaughtered by Christopher Columbus and the conquistadors, and that the land had been stolen. And we sat on the ground feeling sad. And he said, Luce, it's really important that we know our history and that we remember it correctly. I felt ashamed to be white, ashamed about the violent role that seemed to be the repeated pattern. In sixth grade, my school closed and I transferred to Our Lady of Guadalupe, the middle school in my neighborhood in Southwest Detroit. And I remember on the very first day, my dad and I arrived early, and we met the different parents and teachers and students, and we were very excited. And I remember before he left, my dad turned to me and he said, girl, you're going to become street. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not know what he meant. <laughs> Those years turned out to be really hard. I was one of four white kids in the school and the only one in my class. And as a middle schooler, I tried to fit in. And the cool kids were the Latinas. So I tried desperately to be Mexican. <laughs> they called me La Blue Eyes. <laughs> and I started behaving differently. I gelled my hair. I tried to make my own cornrows. I bought expensive tennis shoes that I kept polished. And every week, I'd work really hard and try to get in with them. And by Friday, I felt pretty good. But on Monday, I was back to the bottom. Little white girl. That experience of working really hard, trying to fit in, but feeling different and lonely, proved to be really valuable through my life. It has helped me see things from another perspective. In high school and in college, I went to majority white Catholic schools. I went to Loyola University in Chicago, and there I met many different people who came from small white towns who'd never had the experience of feeling different. 
They felt nervous about going out into the neighborhood. And their only experiences with people of color were from the news. So when we heard news reports, the criminal was a black male, black male, black male, they'd kind of shrug and act as though it was expected. And it hurt imagining that they didn't know the structural targeted injustice of it all. So I had this tool. I told them what my dad would tell me, that privilege is like riding your bike with the wind at your back. When you have privilege, you may not know you have it. So you get to congratulate yourself, like, oh, my diet's paying off, and I'm working really hard, and I've been on top of it, and I'm doing really well. But when you don't have privilege, you're aware of it. You're riding into the wind, you're working twice as hard and going half the distance. It's a lot like that lesson in first grade. If you get to poop in the toilet, you don't have to think about the field. After college, I joined public relations agency life. I remember on the very first day, there were different whispers that they only hired attractive people because you might have to jump on camera and represent a client at any time. I looked around the room. Everyone was white, except for two very light-skinned black women. Much like in middle school, I tried to assimilate myself. Here, people were put together, and they had a culture of complaining, but they seemed to kind of enjoy it. I started, <laughs> I started learning fashion symbols. I put highlights in my hair. I bought a smartphone, and I ate a lot of brunch. I continued in this manner for the next couple years until my mom's birthday in 2013. My mom had passed away several years earlier. So when I got off the train that day, I stopped at the grocery store to pick out her favorite dessert, brownies and mint chocolate chip ice cream that I planned to eat alone. When I checked out, I took out some cash because I was going home for the holiday and put it in my backpack. When I left, I got out my phone and continued watching TV as I walked. I walked several blocks like this until I heard my mom calling from within me. I looked up and realized that it was snowing, her favorite. So I wrapped up my headphones and put my phone in my pocket. I tried to really feel in the moment. I breathed in the deep, cold air and watched and really saw the snowflakes were fluffily floating down. I felt like I was looking up for the first time in two years. And as I walked, I passed two men. And feeling in the moment, I sought to make eye contact and to smile. But they didn't pass. They nodded toward a gun. I froze in horror, fearing that this was the end of my life. The first man said, give me your purse. I don't have a purse, I said honestly, thinking though of the money I had just taken out and the work computer in my backpack. Give me your purse. I don't have a purse. He started ruffling through my groceries. You're going to take my groceries, I said? That's when I remembered a Loyola campus safety event where they had explained that somebody who's mugging you really doesn't want to kill you. So I turned to the silent man and through tears I said, I need you to be my friend. Please be my friend. I need you to be my friend. And he looked back with pain in his eyes and we were frozen. 
The first man grew frustrated. He tore my pocket off and took my phone, and the two ran. When I made the police report, I hated reporting that it was two black males because I could hear it already on the news for future Loyola students. And as I walked around in the next several weeks, as I passed black men on the street or rode the train with black men, I froze in horror, remembering the trauma. But I rem remembered what my dad had taught me, that suspicion is hurtful and violent and its own form of abuse. So I practiced letting go, making eye contact, and smiling. And in true human nature, every person smiled back. I really believe that it was my mom that sent me that wake-up call. I realized later that I wanted to live closer to those two black men than I did to that version of myself walking down the street. Within the year, I moved home to Detroit, a community that I've always known to be diverse, a community where people know their neighbors and look out for one another. And I commit to clumsily exploring race that I practice by experience closeness with many different types of people and doing my very best to be honest. Because as my dad taught me, if we can know our histories and our identities, we can all be a little more gentle with each other. <laughs> Twisted Storytellers is a production of WDET in Detroit. Recorded live at the Wright Museum by Connor Anderson and Rasan Cherry. Sound design and mix by Sam Bobian. Podcast coordinator Joan Isabella. And special thanks to Michael Perkins. I am your host, Satori Shakur. And thank you, MGM Grand Detroit, for supporting Season 2 of Twisted Storytellers Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>